Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Cheryl Toth and Mike Sakopoulos, and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Hey, Tothy. I'm excited for today's podcast. We have two fabulous guests. Yes, we do. You are interviewing Dr. Grace Terrell and Mr. Bo Bobbitt, attorney, about their new book, uh, Value-Based Healthcare. And they take on the topic of value-based healthcare. And in particular, they talk about a variety of subspecialties and have some great things to say. And this is a very important topic. Oh, a- absolutely. We're going to look at how healthcare moves from fee-for-service model uh, towards a value-based uh, model. And let's admit, it's not going to be an easy transition. No, it's not. And and of course, all of our colleagues and for the last few years, people have been talking about this and there's been uh, pilot programs and now more and more contracts are going to risk-based. But to move Mm. us from work RVUs into this is um, not easy. But thankfully, Bo Bobbitt is a seasoned healthcare attorney and he'll help navigate the path from both a legal and a practical point of view. That will be helpful. And we also have Dr. Grace Terrell bringing her uh, perspective as a, a physician to this mm-hmm. topic. Important. In fact, we're going to get down into the uh, specialty level here. She'll give us concrete examples of how value-based healthcare can and does work in an exam room setting. Great. And their book is a roadmap to fundamentally changing the U.S. healthcare system. So that's a pretty big statement, Tothi. I think and so. <laughs> I think that the stakes could not be higher. So we should have everyone's uh, attention on this, given the, the nature of the topic and the quality of, of our guests and, and authors here. But before we tackle value-based healthcare, we need to do word of the show. Oh, good. Well, here's our word. It is mawkish. M-A-W-K-I-S-H mawkish. This is an adjective that means sentimental in a feeble or sickly way. You know, the first thing that comes to mind when you say that, Tothy? What? The Hallmark Channel. Quite mawkish. Yeah. Disgustingly so, right? (laughs) Ouch. It's sort of syrupy, Mm. syrupy sentimental, and it is kind of sickly, isn't it? Um, (laughs) I agree. And so on that slightly offbeat and somewhat mean-spirited note. Let's move on. Why don't you um, introduce our guests? Oh, absolutely. So, Dr. Grace Terrell is Chief Executive Officer at Aventus Whole Health and was formerly CEO at Envision Genomics. She is also a general internist at Cornerstone Internal Medicine. Formerly, Dr. Terrell was a general internist and Chief Executive Officer of Cornerstone Healthcare PA, a multi-specialty medical group in the Piedmont Triad region of North Carolina with more than 370 providers and 1,800 employees who practice at 15 separate hospitals. She is co-author of MD 2.0, Physician Leadership for the Information Age. With her today is Bo Bobbitt. Bo Bobbitt is a healthcare attorney with the firm of Smith Anderson in Raleigh, North Carolina. He is a nationally recognized author and presenter, specializing in areas such as accountable care organizations and value-based healthcare. Bo has been named each year for more than the past 20 years by Best Lawyers in America as a top healthcare attorney. 
He has also received an AV rating from Martindale Hubble, which is the top rating a lawyer can receive, and it is received by less than 5% of practicing attorneys. We are lucky to have both Dr. Terrell and Mr. Bobbitt with us today. Grace, I'll start in with uh, the first question, which is admittedly a little little vague and broad, but to uh, get a high-level discussion started, and we can drill down from there about metrics. Okay? Okay. So the, the question that you ask is, what are the metrics to gauge success in value-based healthcare? And from my point of view, the answer is, well, what is value? It's supposed to be high quality at the lowest possible cost. Um, and so the way you have to think about metrics for success, are, are you providing that? Particularly, are you providing that for a whole population of patients? Or are you providing it for the individual patient in front of you? So a lot of people get really too caught up in the metrics as the end game, but, but it's not. The metrics are essentially a way of, of really rethinking the way that um, you, um, you think about the business of medicine. And so, for example, within the context of cost, if you're looking at the total cost of care and lowering it, then um, that would be a value-based metric that you can do. So you can look at the decreased number of hospitalizations. You could look at improved outcomes. You could look at all sorts of things. Some of the contracts are specific in terms of the way that um, the types of things that are measured. But within that context, the things that are measured are all should go back to the quality of care and lowering the to- total cost of care for the population. Thank you. Um, Bo, do you have, have any thoughts on, on metrics? Just sort of to provide a little context, it's absolutely the core set of metrics. Simply put, better care at the lowest possible cost. We're moving to population health, and that, that term is very expressive and accurate, and you'll hear Dr. Terrell and I reference that as a way to a new way to look at the, this healthcare delivery model, value-based care, and, and sort of part and parcel of that notion is a, is a reference of a, a set of metrics called the triple aim, and it has those better care, lower costs as the two, but the third is uh, improved community health or population health, um, and so, and then I would add a fourth. Um, as we, um, we move in our journey to help transition providers and hospitals and patients and insurance companies and, and the government to this model is, and some people call it the quadruple aim, which is professional satisfaction. And uh, mm. th- that a point that we, when we achieve it, that you realize that this is a better way instead of a burdensome thing that's being imposed on the practice of medicine it's actually a much better way and, and really a, a, the professional satisfaction can be uh, higher than in, in the fee-for-service model. So those are the four elements that come to my mind. I like that um, last element of uh, a focus on the, the provider or, or physicians. And, and to that end, maybe we can discuss the necessary uh, skills that, that physicians must possess when moving towards a value-based model. Thoughts on what type of skills uh, would be necessary for physicians to possess for these type of, of models? One of the things that I think is true of every physician I've met is that 
We are very good. We're trained and selected for good um, critical thinking skills. And the new thing that needs to be added to value-based models is really the creative skills, the design thinking, because we're doing something new and different. And it's going to require physicians to really rethink some of the fundamental ways that they've been providing care under the fee-for-service system. So um, it's going to require them to think about what's good for the patient above and beyond a particular procedure or diagnosis or medicine that they're um, prescribing. And, and it's going to be uh, thinking about patients within a whole person point of view. And then even with that, within the context of a community point of view, it's going to require team-based skills, as we say very prominently um, in the introduction uh, of the book, value-based care is a team sport. And that's something that uh, clinicians haven't always been trained for in the past, but it's going to be super crucial going forward. I agree with you. The next thing that that comes to mind, and this may be a little bit um, outside the norm, and so I'm going to direct it to our attorney, Bo. Let's talk about corporate practice of medicine, and, and there's a general, I think you'd agree, uh, prohibition against uh, corporations practicing medicine. Is this, does this impact value-based healthcare, and if so, how? Thank you. Um, actually, I don't think it does, and it really has to do with uh, sort of two reasons I have for that. One is that building out the, uh, the models, and sort of our team looks at the successful integrated care models, value-based care models, ACOs, clinically integrated networks, whatever buzzword you want to use. A core driver, maybe the core driver, is whether physicians are engaged and either owning it, but certainly managing it and, and uh, being on the board and being decision makers and key committees. In fact, the Medicare program requires 75% of, of the governing body of all of these value-based care models they approve to be practicing physicians. So one, it's not like we're expecting corporations to move in and run these things. And the second is that you do need to reach out for technology and, and maybe some business assets and things that, that you, you haven't had before, some of that infrastructure, those pieces there but they can be supplied with MSO, or we call it management service agreements or, or uh, analytics uh, contracts and things of that nature. So the corporate practice of medicine, anti-kickback, antitrust, self-referral laws, all were built in a different day and age when um, fee-for-service, when, and they, they are, there are quite a few hurdles to get over at, so for those uh, sort of uh, legacy-type uh, legal programs and, and legal issues. But uh, I think corporate practice of medicine is is a good example of how, how you can still um, do what you need to do and be legally compliant. Great. Dr. Terrell, for some of our listeners that may be a little bit less familiar um, than, than others with value-based healthcare models in, in general, can, can we talk about the elements of what you feel is, uh, comprises value-based healthcare? Sure. So I, I think about it and it's in our title, um, is what, what are the components of the care models and what are the components of the um, payment models? Um, so within the context of the care models, there needs to be uh, thinking about patients that um, aren't necessarily getting the best type of care in a fee-for-service world and redesigning care pathways and protocols around them. There's the care team, which is absolutely um, a crucial component. Who needs to be part of a care team for a particular individual? 
There's disease management. So um, we talk about this obviously in the book as we're looking at how that relates to different specialties and what they bring to the table. But a condition-focused interventions component is something that doctors can very quickly and other clinicians get their teeth into. Um, there's social determinants of health. There's all the quality management that really needs to come out of the care model. Um, and then the, the second component is the actual uh, payment methodology. So if you're talking about doing value-based care, you need to be paid in value-based contracts. And they have to be designed. Um, and there's, we go, go into great detail about that in the book, but they have to be designed with different types of uh, things in mind. So it may be a full risk contract. It may be paid for performance. It may be shared savings. Um, or some other uh, type of value component, such as bundled payment. But understanding that's important. Also doing risk adjustment. Um, so you got to know who your sick patients are and make sure that you get paid for taking care of your sick patients in a way that risk adjusts for that. And then finally, I think there's just a whole um, component that's, that's really crucial to both the care models and the payment models and that is the integration of information. So if you've got the ability to look at information, not just at an individual level, but across the spectrum of the patients that you're taking care of, and you're bringing into that integrated information about the payment models that they have and the cost of care, then that really becomes a, a real crucial component to it all. We were talking about elements of value-based healthcare, and it seems to me as organizations begin to move in that direction that there's going to be transitions uh, taking place. And so maybe you could help me with what organizations need to do to prepare for the transition for fee-from-service uh, over to a more value-based healthcare system. What are some of the things uh, that need to be done for that transition? Grace, do you mind if I, you mind I was going to say, Bo, you need to take this one. You do a lot of this. <laughs> Great question, Mike. And it really, uh, in order to hit the ground running, before uh, the the year performance year starts off or performance, the contract goes into effect, there, there are a number of things that are very important to be done and frankly uh, overlooked more often than they're actually observed. Those, some of them are, are new and different and subjective and it's just, it's just a different mindset and different lens to, to look at healthcare delivery through. Uh, and we're well down the road uh, on the move to value care, the journey, but um, it's still in its infancy. And the main one uh, that we've seen is this uh, culture shift. And this needs to be done months before you actually go live. And, you know, shifting from independence to interdependence for physicians is hard. And then um, for a hospital to commit fully to value, to be happy that the dead days are down, and then for to abandon the, the control mentality that's been necessary for hospitals in the past in the, in the former delivery model, those are very, very difficult transitions to make and, and often are not done. And sometimes uh, some of the results have shown that actually um, the second round, it's like year three or four by the time an ACO actually does get this culture culture down in the, in the approach. And if, uh, for example, the physicians are passive aggressive and just think, you know, be involved in, in monitoring patient care and, and, and using decision support to follow best practices and reduce variability is a, is a wedge between them and their patient, then regardless of how great the technology or the infrastructure is, this organization is going to fail. So that's by far the biggest priority for transition planning. 
accurate risk coding. This is a sleeper. Simply put, a shared savings model compares last year's cost to it was predicted uh, inflationary cost versus this year's results. And too often, the, uh, the overworked, overburdened uh, coding team and the physicians uh, undercode uh, what the, the actual acuity levels, and it unfortunately artificially reduces that benchmark. Uh, last year's cost is called a benchmark, and so. Um, Doing that before the year kicks in is uh, is absolutely crucial. It's a sleeper um, that 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 have really hurt a lot of a lot of ACOs. You need to get your analytics acquired. You need to understand it, play with it, drive it, and then start actually working with your committees and your board and uh, and, and some of that education and orientation and uh, and gearing up to do this. It's it, this is a this is quite different uh, approach. Um, and then finally, um, of course, um, the, the, the legal structure and uh, the legal compliance and infrastructure needs to be in place. That some people pay more attention to that and, and paying them for their technology when that's it because it's, it's subjective and familiar. And, and, but the subjective and change management issues of culture are probably the, the most difficult and maybe the most, therefore, the most important. You've given a really insightful and elegant description of things that need to be done in in preparation and although I time-wise I'm going to need to move on but I, I am very curious as to a number how long do you think an organization needs to be in a preparatory phase it seems to me this isn't something that's done in 30 or 45 days Grace you you you've launched some successful programs what what, what would you estimate um, you know it, it's going to take months to a year for many of the types of things that you have to do to prepare. But I tell you something that can be done very, very quickly. And that is everybody that I know comes into healthcare really wanting to do the right thing for patients and very quickly getting people on board that value-based care is not some threat to something that's good, but is an improvement in terms of how we're able to take care of patients and providing you know, new ways of thinking through things, you can very quickly get clinicians and other team members excited about that. Once you do that, then there, a lot of the rest of it is not the why, which you've dealt with, but the how. And that's what takes a little bit of time is the design process. So we've done some um, work in the past where once everybody was on board with the why, we very quickly got, you know, certain types of 13, 14 week processes in place for various groups of subspecialists that we were rolling out one at a time. I'd say the whole process took about a year, but getting uh, people understanding up front while we were doing something and getting them excited about it, that can be done very quickly. You've gotten me excited about it. Just think, thinking of it, we're headed in the right direction. And, and I think you said it very nicely. Let's now move from the, the why to the how and, and talk about uh, some things that are, are necessary for implementation. What in, in the value-based model, you know, it's the old Voltaire quote, right? That when it, when it comes to money, we're all of the same, same religion. How, how, do you, how do you deal with that in clinicians and in changing the way in which uh, they are compensated? The basic business model of fee-for-service and this isn't to say that it's 
all terrible and bad, but it's the way the business is organized around it. It's the thing that you do, your individual specific thing that you do. You do it as efficiently as possible. You do as many units of that thing that you do as possible. And your profit um, or what you take home is is the difference between uh, how much it costs to do it and the, the number of units that you've got. So it's, it's a very much of a treadmill game, if you will, of, of sort of individual units. And, and much of fee for service is built on this, uh, whether at the hospital level or clinician level. So the things that you invest in in a business model like that are capacity. So hospitals won't uh, medical staff, they build buildings, they want to do more things. When you're going to value-based care, you've really got to flip that on its head and the types of things that you invest in are uh, different because you're looking at the total cost of care. And so sometimes you're going to spend more money on certain things that are not profitable in the fee-for-service world because it's going to provide you value uh, by lowering the total cost of care. You may um, actually get some shared savings uh, as a result of that. So you have to educate the uh, clinicians on this. You have to come up with a compensation uh, formula that will actually reward people, not just for the uh, quantity of the things that they do, but the quality. And you have to invest in actually measuring these things and doing it fairly. You don't have to do everything overnight, um, but coming up with new ways of measuring things um, is a real crucial component to this. Excellent. One of the things in your book that I was excited to, to ask you about and, and learn more about is the, the concept of community ecosystems. You talk about value-based healthcare organizations need to look beyond their, their four walls into, you mentioned community ecosystems and how they impact value. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I'll kick that off if that's okay. Um, that's a, it, it's great. another great question that we're looking at uh, models where we're looking at, you're looking at 100% of the patient population assigned to you. And ultimately that include, will, will include the entire community. And as opposed to uh, uh, statistics show only 15% of that, of your patient population actually self-assigns themselves to the emergency room, the hospital, or the doctor's office. But yet the statistics are that, um, that at least 75% of the health status drivers uh, are outside of uh, the doctor's office and the hospital uh, admissions area. And in the last, really, it's fairly recent that there are a lot of successes in, in looking at community resources or, or the community ecosystem and affecting those. And it really gets back to the notion of we are talking about a population health as opposed to, uh, and knowing who they are, having their diseases and, and their environmental uh, proclivities for, for having health problems, having that all, all scouted out and scoped out. So it's a very exciting thing, but yet under fee-for-service, the money went to the, the medical industry, uh, hospitals and, and the medical practices, and where people showed up and you reacted. It was sick care. It wasn't health care. Um, but yet, it, even at this stage of evolution of the, of the value care model, the payments are still being run through the, the establishment, if you will. And I think there's a tremendous opportunity to, to look at those community resources. Uh, and that would include um, coordinating and everything from uh, transportation to food uh, to shelter and safety issues. And then just uh, and using uh, 
you know, innovations in technology to embrace that. So, yeah, th- this is a fairly radical rethinking, redesigning of the way we look at healthcare delivery. And I, I think I think it's just the dawning of of a lot of opportunities here when we when, when we change our view from reacting to to, to sick care to, to really investing in, in health care for a population or a community. That is fascinating and hopeful, uh, which is more of what we need. You were saying such nice and hopeful things, uh, Bo, that you got, got me fe- feeling good, good about things. And I was hoping we could maybe move into some of the specialties for specific examples of value-based uh, care. And, and I know that your book covers approximately 20 different uh, specialties of, of medicine. But for purposes of time, I've, I've just selected two. I'd like to talk about dermatologists and oncologists and maybe some frontline strategies uh, for value-based healthcare with these uh, specialties. Uh, well, I, let me talk. I was involved, uh, very fortunate work with uh, researchers and, and clinicians in these areas and sort of drafted some, some white papers, and we distilled still the essence of some of those to this. And so let me maybe talk about the structure, but I'm definitely not a clinician. So I'll defer to, to Dr. Terrell to, to really maybe provide some specific examples. But first is how do you optimize the role of, of specialists in, in value-based care? One of the fascinating things of this four-year process of these 20-odd uh, investigations in, in the value contributions of specialties was how potent all of them were. I was skeptical for a number of them uh, dermatology being one of them, but um, it, uh, it was it was fascinating. But that being said, we have to say that, that involving specialists has to be done uh, pr- appropriately. You need a primary care core, and then you need to design your uh, you look at your gaps in care, and then you from that you go, what's the low hanging fruit? What's what's worked elsewhere? And after you do that, you go, who who involved? Who's ideal? to be involved in these care teams for these best, these high value best practices. And then, and only then, it's almost like picking an athletic team. Do you pick a cardiologist or a behavioralist or someone along those lines? So Grace and I have to say that because that's being done maybe more inappropriately by the entire medical staff or the, by our community. Uh, and then you try to find something for people to do. And that's one reason that that people just say, well, it's, it's all about primary care. That's absolutely not the case. And a good example is dermatologists. And first of all, and this is fairly classic, and it, and it, and it uh, spread across a number of these specialties. It's a two-way street. First of all, uh, ophthalmologists and dermatologists, both, um, they are early, uh, early warning systems. They can, they can provide early detection of uh, different uh, diseases and problems and complications and heretofore, under the fee-for-service system, as Dr. Terrell described, you sort of stay in your in the, the way the medical school training is. You, you you treat within your specialty. You don't coordinate particularly with anybody. Um, and, and it's a radically new world where you have you can aided by technology. You can if the dermatologist is in the ACO, for example, they can find out. They can look at the medical picture and the and the medications and the, and the background and and then make an early diagnosis and then communicate that to uh, let's say the patient-centered medical home, let's say a primary care practice in, the, in this example. The other thing that can happen is, um, and then we found that to be quite useful, is to push knowledge into the medical home. 
outstanding protocols, um, access to care, being on the team, maybe uh, lunch and learns, and then providing uh, providing knowledge. Uh, particularly, we learned in our research regarding uh, skin cancer, and then co-management agreements, and then uh, teledermatology and things like that can be um, can be very very useful. I think it's pretty obvious if, but nobody we've never thought about things this way. I mean, you can see how in an integrated care setting, how uh, how effective that team team based approach can be. Dr. Terrell, did, do you have any clinical? Uh, yeah. So, so let me give you area? some some very specific examples of some things that I know some uh, very thoughtful uh, people that are thinking about value based models have done within the context of oncology. Data basically shows that one of the problems that happens when somebody gets cancer is um, if they get to the emergency room, uh, they get way more studies than they sometimes need. And often what brings them to the emergency room is not their cancer. But once, once they've got that diagnosis, that's the only lens that everybody sees uh, through. So I know um, of a group that actually embedded um, a, a general internist, a primary care clinician in their oncology practice. So, um, and then they, they ultimately developed an urgent care for their oncology patients that was um, extended hours and access so that they were able to get people in for, you know, complications of, of uh, dehydration or mouth ulcers, mucositis and these other things. And it greatly lowered the um, the decrease in uh, it lowered the uh, inappropriate emergency room use. So this was a you know in the trenches creative solution that you know uh, oncologists that were doing some design thinking were um, did that made a great deal of difference and paid off. And that idea came out uh, from the frontline clinicians. Um, an example in dermatology is. Um, Bo uh, alluded to uh, skin cancer. Well, um, uh, Mo's surgery is a, uh, which is mentioned in our book, is a uh, type of surgery that is complex. Uh, the, the dermatologist is the pathologist, the surgeon, and the reconstructive surgeon uh, all in one. And um, there are ways of doing that which are appropriate, and there's ways of doing that which are inappropriate. And there was a great deal of information in um, in the work that the dermatologists did on their uh, guide on really looking at when this is appropriate to do and when it's not appropriate to do. And then what you do in a value-based contract is you measure it and you figure out the variation in uh, providers as well as variation in techniques. And you can quickly save a lot of money at the same time the patients are getting better care. Excellent. And in your, your first example, Dr. Carroll, you, you were mentioning a, a patient that was seeing an oncologist shows up at, a, at an ER, overutilization of ER, and, and lots of studies being done. And that, that reminds me of a potential other um, uh, problem. And this comes to me maybe because of my, my viewpoint of, of doing some um, med mal defense work, but recently I had a, had a client that was was a radiologist and had was involved in in some litigation that said that, that he had not ordered all the the appropriate studies. And his reaction was, you know, from now on my patients are just going to glow. I'm going to order everything uh, <laughs> under the sun. Uh, now this clearly could be one uh, person's uh, overreaction, but it does raise the issue of uh, defensive medicine. 
um, and, and how that can be problematic, especially when looking at, at value-based healthcare. And maybe this question is is best for uh, for our attorney, Bob, um, well, to to talk about. But does there need to be some form of of tort reform to properly have value-based healthcare function? I don't think it's a deal killer. I, I can see see the hesitancy and the fact that there's a cultural uh, because of the. The, the malpractice crisis over the years is that's a natural reaction and we've heard it as we we're designing these things uh, actually i was fortunate enough to do a national um, paper researching this and since you're a med mal defense attorney you you've probably heard this but back in the days uh th some of this is a vestige from from the days of just just plain capitation or uh withholds and and it all it had to do was you're getting paid um the payment was only, did you make budget? Under value care, it's very important. It's urgently important to know that the compensation is only if the quality is as good or better, the patient satisfaction is excellent, and there are savings that can be shared. So it's radically different because of, uh, we've heard the, the tales um, of uh, the plaintiff lawyer looking at the doctor and saying, so you compromise, you withheld care for the sake of the almighty dollar. Well, that is not the case here. And then our research was showing, Mike, that, you know, the, these are actually best practices. <laughs> and that means, uh, you, you know, you, you say, let's, let's all do standardized evidence-based best practices. And if there's no malocurrence, there's no malpractice claim. So, and then the fact that if you are within the, uh, the standards um, and the best practices that it, it is uh, our defense attorneys in, in, in my law firm tell me that it's an excellent shield to, to show the care was appropriate. It just happened to be a malocurrence that, that w but was not due to the negligence of the, of the treating physician. And an example is that uh, we were doing work with uh, anesthesiologists and they'd adopted guidelines. And that raised some concerns by in the malpractice field because, and there was concern, but then it turned out that the claims actually dropped uh, for the reasons I, I enunciated, and they had a, and the, and the uh, malpractice providers dropped the, uh, dropped the premiums by 7%. So done right, you know, doing what you're supposed to do within value-based care uh, environment actually lowers your malpractice risk. Now, we do need to work on that opposite perception. <laughs> yeah, so, so let me um, just basically remind everybody that doing, that making patients glow, as the radiologist that you quoted said, by doing more studies, number one, it's abuse. Number two, it's not professional. And number three, doing more can is not necessarily doing better. And although sometimes that's used by plaintiff's attorneys, um, if there's a failure to diagnosis or a bad outcome. Bo is absolutely right. Um, in systems that are team-based, protocol-driven, um, where there are guidelines and standards uh, going on, um, you're not bankrupting the patient with inappropriate care, which is the other side of it. It, it in my opinion, is a more ethical point of view. And um, so long as you're providing the right care, which is what value-based care is about. It's not about omitting care, it's about providing the right care. Then I think that that's the reason that there's a decreased malpractice risk. And the data out there, 
as Bo says, and he's written on, um, is basically starting to validate this. Excellent. Great responses uh, from, from both of you. Well, appreciate the attorney-client privilege will prohibit me from releasing the name of the radiologist in, uh, in, in question, um, but he should uh, shrink into the corner after uh, listening to your answers. Uh, well, well, well done, uh, both of you. Uh, unfortunately, we're running close on time, but, uh, but I'm, I'm very much interested in both of your opinions on where you see uh, the future of, of value-based healthcare out, pick a five or, or, or 10 year uh, time horizon, because this is quite exciting. And I think you've done groundbreaking work with your, your new book. And I'd like to have uh, your opinions and, and prognostications as to where we're headed. I'm going to just say, I think it will be, it's the best way. It could be the golden era of the practice of medicine. It, it is absolutely uh, necessary to uh, stretch the healthcare dollar. Our current service system is uh, is 50% more expensive than any other country, and that being France, not the most efficient country in the world, and 32nd in what we get for it. And just with the, the government-paid health care uh, alone, uh, our, our country, much less our health care system, can't sustain it. I think, therefore, and with the progress we've seen and, and uh people, un when they understand it, embracing it and getting excited about it, as Dr. Terrell announced, I think it will be the coin of the realm in 10 to 15 years. Now, I want to turn it quickly over to Dr. Terrell because I, I think she's probably the, the most expert person in the country on this question. So I think that um, 10 uh, years from now, uh, we'll, we'll be in a different world as we always are, but it's a world where there will be new types of technology, artificial intelligence, and other types of technologies, including precision medicine. They can take and build on the work that's going on in value-based care right now to really hone in on the right care at the right time, at the right place for the right person, uh, quadruple aim, because we'll have more precision in it. And that will uh, create its own challenges for you know, business models. Uh, and you know, quite frankly, the insurance companies, as well as much of our science has been based on uh, 19th century Gaussian and Boolean algebra curves that are going to be obsolete. So that's, uh, from my point of view, a hopeful time. Uh, I hope that what this is, is the time that the clinicians and the healthcare uh, providers um, in the United States of America save our country from bankruptcy and that we're all patriots. And, um, and we're patriots because what we do is we uh, redesign care that's going to be far better it will, um, it will be a, a world that we have um, decided to go forward in a way that's uh, much better than the alternative. Ladies and gentlemen, you cannot do better than that. That was a very nice, uh, very nice answer and a, a, certainly a direction that we should all hope uh, and hope that your vision is one that, that comes uh, true for our, our country. Um, and the, the idea of, of physicians as, as patriots is, is long. Um, overdue and being stated on this podcast. So thank you. I've been speaking to authors Grace Terrell and Bo Bobbitt of the forthcoming value-based healthcare and payment models. Thank you both for taking time to be on Sound Practice. I very much enjoyed this. Our pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Well, Mike, I feel hopeful for the future of healthcare in the U.S. Dr. Terrell and Bo Bobbitt make a really strong case for the value-based model, don't they? Oh, I absolutely agree with that. 
And look, I thought Dr. Carroll's answer to the final question, absolutely tremendous. Linking physicians' patriotic duty to saving healthcare in the United States was spot on, just great. It, it really was. And you know, um, they were so interesting and I would like to learn more about this. I've added value-based healthcare to my reading list. And um, if there are folks out there that would like to do the same, they can find it by going to physicianleaders.org and clicking on publications in that top navigation bar. You'll see a way to purchase books and eBooks there. I'm, I'm going to be right behind you doing that, Tothi, because it's on my list uh, now too. Well, we've got some reading to do, some thinking to do, and we have we come to the, <laughs> as always, and we have come to the end of, uh, of this episode of, of Sound Practice. I hope everyone enjoyed our interviews with uh, Dr. Grace Terrell and Bo Bobbitt. And if you did, please consider rating us on our website, soundpracticepodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Oh, yes, we would like that very much. And if you'd like to give us feedback directly or make a suggestion of a guest or change the format of the podcast, please send us an email. And you can send that to feedback at soundpracticepodcast.com. And please join us next time on Sound Practice. Don't forget, we release a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Batman and Robin. Rick Kapow.